Good morning. All right, today we begin our Christmas series. The title of it is Planned and Unplanned Parenthood, and the name is meant to reflect the idea that the birth of Jesus Christ was both planned and unplanned. The birth of Jesus Christ was unplanned from Joseph and Mary's point of view, right? They didn't expect it to happen when the angels showed up. I think they were surprised. They didn't even do things that should have caused the pregnancy and the birth to happen. So from Mary and Joseph's point of view, it was an unplanned thing. And yet from God's point of view, it was most certainly planned. And the plans for Jesus and his birth go back, go way back. So today's Bible passage is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Okay, we're going to learn the first 17 verses of Matthew. These, passage, these verses are not taught on very often. I don't think I have ever taught on them before, and they're not taught on very often at church. And in fact, some of you who might be familiar with how the book of Matthew begins, you might even be like, oh, that's a boring passage. Okay, and so I just want to let you know, this passage, and, and this is what I'm hoping, I'm hoping that by the end of this sermon, you will see that this passage was not meant to bore you. And in fact, it teaches us something that's very important. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the Christmas story, which makes sense, right? It's the story of Jesus, so it begins with his birth. And the, the prologue to the Christmas story is these 17 verses. So let me go ahead and read them to you, starting with the first verse. Matthew 1, 1 says this. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew begins his gospel. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what you will notice is there's a problem with the verse right away. How in the world do you have someone who is the son of two men, right? Like, how is it possible that someone could have two dads? They'd be the son of David and the son of Abraham. And, and especially if you know the story, if you've ever been to a Christmas pageant, that's weird because Jesus' father's never named David or Abraham, right? And you'd think that the Christmas story would begin with the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and Mary, right? That's what it would say, son of Joseph and Mary. Why does it start off with the son of David, the son of Abraham? So this is important to know that in the Bible, when it says the word son of, on many occasions, the word son of means descendant of, okay? That this person descended from this person. And so um, Jesus, um, for, for David would have been to Jesus, his great, 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 grandfather, okay? And Abraham would have been Jesus' great, 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 grandfather, right? Jesus is the son of, the descendant of David and the descendant of Abraham. And then it gets into the particulars. So the next verse says this. Abraham, this is where he begins, his genealogy. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. These names represent Bible stories from the book of Genesis that would have been very familiar to the people who originally read this. Okay, Matthew is a Jewish man who's writing to, I believe, a Jewish audience, people in the first century who are, who are Jewish or at least familiar with the Old Testament. So that when he said Abraham fathered Isaac, they, that, this was not new information. They were not going, oh, oh, I didn't know. No, they know. They would say Abraham fathered Isaac. Yeah, everybody knows that. Right? We all know that. Of course, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. We know all the stories behind this. When we've gone to synagogue and we've heard this read, when our mothers told us these stories, we know Abraham fathered Isaac. And there's way more to the story than just that. And Isaac fathered Jacob. There's a whole bit about that. And Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Who are his brothers? Okay? You may not be able to name them, but I think the people who originally read this, they would have been like, of course we know who his brothers are. 
they were the same, for the most part, the names of the brothers would have been the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, because that's who they descended from, Judah and his brothers. Judah was one of the tribes, and you got Benjamin, you got Reuben. One of the brothers who a tribe was not named after, Joseph, is probably one of the most famous people in this his brothers category. And Joseph is a very famous story. Joseph in the coat of many colors. In fact, I assume the Joseph that's in these brothers would have been the same Joseph that Joseph and Mary's Joseph was named after. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm just assuming you got a Jewish guy in the first century named Joseph, probably named after the really famous Joseph that was in the First Testament. So they knew these stories. They knew this. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, yes. And then here's the next verse. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon. So now we've moved on to less well-known people. Okay, don't know near as much about these people. Not that we don't know anything. I know a little bit about Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. There's, that story's in the Old Testament. But for the most part, these are not as famous characters. And some of them, I think, are just people that we know from Old Testament genealogical records. That this person was the father of this person that was the father of this person. And then you get to the next verse, verse 5. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. Oh, we're back to famous people right? Rahab would be famous, Boaz, Ruth, Jesse, King David. These will all be very much more. We're back into famous people like Abraham fathered Isaac. We, if you've gone to Sunday school, or you grew up in church, you've read a lot of the Bible, you know the story with Rahab, you know, Boaz, you know Boaz, Ruth, super famous, had a whole book named after her. Jesse's mentioned in the book of Isaiah, not only, like, and also in the, the books that he's in where he does what he does. Anyway, Jesse fathered. And then what's interesting here is, so David's probably the most famous person in this verse, maybe the most famous person on this whole list. And David is the first person in this genealogical record to get a title. In fact, he's the only person in the whole genealogical record that gets a title. Everybody else just gets names, right? But then you get to Jesse, and it's interesting. It doesn't say, it says, Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered, you'd think it'd say David, but it says Jesse fathered what? King David. Why did he throw in the word king there when nobody else got a title. You might go, well, because he was the king. Yeah, but there's other kings in this genealogy that are coming, and they don't all get king in front of their name. I think that Matthew is making a point here. He's saying, he's, once you know Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered not just David, not just somebody named David. He fathered King David because that fact is an important part of this story. He's making a point. He's pointing out that Jesus is the promised king who came from the line of King David, that there had been a promise to King David that there would be someone who would be on the throne that would come from David, who would have an everlasting kingdom. And so as he's getting us ready to understand who Jesus is, he wants us to know Jesus is the king that came from King David. He fulfilled the promise that there was the great king to come from King David's line. And so he just gets to this point. He says, oh, no, Jesse didn't just father David. He fathered King David, because that's what this is about. This is about, and you're going to see when we get to verse 16, this is about the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. So he specifically makes sure everybody knows this is King David. Then the next part of that verse says, Then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And this list of people is 
um, I, I think maybe completely or, or mostly kings. It might be that every single one of them is a king. Um, I didn't look up every single name, but just as I looked at this list that came from David, you have this kingly line that comes from David. David's um, son Solomon was king and came after him. And so these are a list of kings. I, I think it might be every single one of them, but for sure, when I just looked at it this week for the first time, I just noticed like Rehoboam, Asa, um, you know, Uzziah, Jehoshaphat, I remember these as Old Testament kings. So this is a, the lineage of the kings. And then you get to verse 12. Verse 12 says, Then after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Sheatiel, and Sheatiel fathered Zerubbabel. Now, when you get to this part that says, After the exile to Babylon, does that sound familiar? Do you know what the exile to Babylon is? Oh, I hope you do. Because we just did a series recently where we talked about the exile to Babylon. Do you remember that? Oh, good, good. Somebody remembers. All right, so not the last series on emotions, but the one before that, we talked about how to read the Bible. Do you remember? And when we talked about how to read the Bible, there was a whole sermon we did on the Old Testament and the historical period of the Old Testament and what was going on from Genesis all the way to Malachi. And we put it on the screen here. Do you remember? The whole historical record. And we got to about this part of the screen. Do you remember we talked about the exile? The exile was an insignificant historical event that happened in Israel. We said it happened after the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, but it happened before the events that are described in Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember that? We said there was this period of time where the Israelites were taken out of their land and they lived among their captors and then they were able to go back. So when you get to this verse in Matthew chapter 1 and he says, now after the exile to Babylon, you realize this is not a fairy tale once upon a time. He's talking about history. He's saying like, no, during that historical period, like then this happened. When, 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 when you look back at the history of our people, you remember that time, the exile? Yeah, that was the thing that really happened. So after the exile... Jeconiah fathered Sheatiel, Sheatiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiad, Abiad fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Akim, Akim fathered Eliad, Eliad fathered Eliezer, Eliezer fathered Mathan, Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. And so one thing I want you to notice is in those 17 verses, first of all, they're, they're repetitive. Did you catch that? Yeah, they're real repetitive. In fact, that's, some reason, that's the, the reason why some people would say this passage is boring, because there is a pattern that Matthew follows over and over and over again verbally, right? He says, somebody's name fathered somebody's name. Next line is somebody's name, fathered, somebody's name. Over and over and over again. If you have an old King James Bible, the word there is begat instead of fathered. For those of you that grew up on the King James, remember that? Yeah, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob. Same thing, it doesn't matter whether you use fathered or begat. The point is, this person came from this person, from their body. This was the next generation, and then the next generation. And so he says it over and over again, and this is what I want you to notice. He does it, I think it's like about 40 times. So-and-so fathered so-and-so. So-and-so fathered so-and-so. And then the pattern breaks in verse 16. So I'm going to read 15 and 16 together so that you notice it. Eliad fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Joseph. Who'd Joseph father? That's weird. He broke the pattern, didn't he? You would think that if he was following along with the way he's been doing it with all of these male names, he would say Mathan fathered Jacob and Jacob fathered Joseph and Joseph fathered Jesus. He doesn't do that. Joseph doesn't father Jesus in this verse, does he? No, he's what? He's just the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. 
Why does he say the same thing over and over and over and over again, over and again, just to get to that one verse and then, and then switch up the pattern? Because he's, he's preparing us for the virgin birth, which he's about to explain in the next few paragraphs. Right? He's preparing us for, no, Joseph didn't father Jesus, not in the same sense that all these other people did. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. So those are the first 17 verses of the book of Matthew. They are the introduction to the Christmas story. In fact, they're the introduction to the whole story of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Next week, and I hope you'll be here, next week my plan is for us to talk about the next set of verses. And what we're going to see next week, if the Lord permits me to do this, is that this pregnancy that's mentioned in verse 16, and this birth, I guess, that's mentioned in verse 16, the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus, this birth was unplanned, unexpected, and unwanted from Joseph's point of view. When we get to next week's um, story, we're going to find out that Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and realized that he had not slept with her, therefore it couldn't have been his. So it must have been someone else's. He intended on breaking up with Mary over this. That's what was going to happen. He did not want this to happen. He did not plan for this to happen. From Joseph's point of view, this was unplanned and unwanted. But this pregnancy and this birth that's talked about in verse 16 was definitely planned from God's point of view. In fact, this long historical record that Matthew gives us clues us into the fact that God had been working on this plan for well over a thousand years. That God didn't just look down and decide to get involved at this moment. He had been at work for a long time. Now, we know that God didn't get involved at that moment because the passage says it. If you look at verse 18, which is the very next verse after all this stuff, verse 18 says, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So that's, we see God is involved in this, right? How did Jesus get born? Well, his mother was engaged to Joseph. They had not yet come together, right? They had not slept with one another, but then she was pregnant. How in the world did she get pregnant? Look how Matthew says it. She was pregnant by the what? By the Holy Spirit. I think that's Matthew's way of saying God caused it. God caused it. It was miraculous. It was not the normal way. She was not pregnant in the normal way that would happen if Joseph and Mary just did normal stuff. That's not what's going on here. He's saying she's pregnant and God did it. God caused it to happen in some supernatural way. Don't know exactly how. He caused this to happen. So we look at the story and we can easily see God is involved in this story. The Holy Spirit brought about this miraculous thing that this woman who never slept with a man is pregnant. But the story does not begin there. God intervening in this story does not begin here. Did you know that? This is not the beginning of the story. How do you know this is not the beginning of the story, Mario? Because Matthew doesn't start the story in verse 18. He could have. It makes sense to me that if you're writing a biography of the life of Jesus, and you'd go, well, I'll start with his birth. That seems like a good place to start with someone's birth. He could have made the opening sentence to the book of Matthew be, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way, after his mother Mary, blah, blah, blah. That's how he could have started the book of Matthew, but he didn't. He put 17 verses before this one. Why? Because he believed the story started way earlier than that. It goes back before all this. That God was causing things to happen that brought us to the point of verse 18. Now, for me to make that point, for me to tell you that what I believe is that the first 17 verses show that God had been involved and planning and promising and acting way before this moment, I think for me to make that point to you, I'm going to have to explain some things to you that I believe would have been assumed by Matthew and his readers. Matthew's a Jewish guy in the first century writing to people who are like Jewish or, or familiar with the Old Testament, and I think there are just things they would have known. Like 2,000 years later, we can read this and go, 
What do you mean that this shows us how God was at work? It's just a list of names. I think it'd be very easy for people in our generation to read this and go, this is just a list of names, and it's not, it doesn't show that God did anything in particular, right? Like, if Jesus was human, and he was, then of course he had a grandfather, and of course he had a great-grandfather, and of course he had a great-great-grandfather, and of course they had names. But that's not unique to him. That's true of all of us. All of us have a great-grandfather, and a great-great-grandfather, and a great-great-grandfather, and they had names, even if we don't know their names. They had names, whoever those people were. That doesn't mean that God's particularly involved in this story. But when the readers of the Gospel of Matthew in the first century would have read this, I think they would have immediately known God was involved in the story when they read the names. So let's just look at verse 2 at the beginning of the genealogy. Matthew says this, Abraham fathered Isaac. If you're reading that story in the first century and you're someone who's been going to synagogue every single week and you've heard Genesis over and over and over again, you know there's way more to this story than just Abraham fathered Isaac. It's not like, well, what did Abraham do? Father Isaac. Anything else? Nope, that's it. You can summarize that whole story in three words. No, there's a whole bunch of stuff they knew, chapters and chapters of Genesis behind those words. Now, if you're here and you're not familiar with those chapters and chapters of Genesis, let me go ahead and read you just a few excerpts to catch you up. Some of the things I think they would have thought of when they wrote, read Abraham fathered Isaac. So let me show you this. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says this. The Lord said to Abram, so God's having a conversation with him. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. If you're an Israelite in the first century, you're going to read that and go, yeah, we are that great nation. This, this, that part came true. This is a story we've been told over and over and over again. I remember grandma telling me this when I was little. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And look at this. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the promise that was made to Abraham is there's this blessing that's going to come, and, it's, and you're going to have a great nation that comes from you, these people. But there's a blessing that's going to come not just to the nation that comes from you, not just your descendants, but all the other people groups in the whole world. There's a blessing for them that's going to come through you. How in the world was there supposed to be a blessing for all of the different people groups in the whole world that came through Abraham? You know what the answer is? Jesus. You want to know how you know that? Because people like Matthew told you, or they told someone who told you right? By the time you get to Matthew, you realize Jesus is the answer to their question. Jesus is the way that Abraham, through him, there was a blessing to all the different people's groups, not even just Abraham's people. Now, keep going. I'm in my Bible. I'm just turning one page over to Genesis 15. I'm just going to read you just, like I said, excerpts, little pieces of the story to catch you up. Genesis 15, verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, Abram continued, Look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. So he said, You say I'm going to be this great nation, and all these people will be blessed through me, but I don't have kids. So, so much, I mean, I have so few children, zero in fact, that when I die, my inheritance is going to go over to, I guess, the head slave, right? This guy that works for me. He's going to get all my stuff, because I don't even have a kid. And look what God says back, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir, right? The one you think is going to get all your stuff? No, look. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. 
Now, after this promise, Abraham does have a child, but the child he has is with someone other than his wife. The child's name is Ishmael, and he's not part of this promise. So we still don't have a resolution of the story, but more and more years go by. And Abraham gets, I mean, he's, I think he's old already when most of the story happens, but, it, he's, but by the time I'm about to, what I'm about to read you, he's now super old. Genesis chapter 17, verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, don't, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. This is God saying, I'm going to intervene in the story. I'm going to cause something to happen. I'm going to give you a son by Sarah. Now, how do you know God would have to intervene in the story to make this happen? Doesn't that kind of happen naturally sometimes? Ooh, but look, look. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Now, here's the problem. Look at the next verse. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? Abraham says back to God, like, you say I'm going to have a son and the son, you know, all this stuff, but I mean, maybe you can't see from like way, way up there. But we're old. Um, right? Abraham says, I'm 100 years old. How am I going to have a kid? And more importantly, my wife's 90 years old, and she does most of the work with this. How is she going to have a kid? This is, this is ridiculous. Now, of course, God says, of course, God can see everything. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He can make anything happen. Anyway, verse 18, So Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you, meaning the son that I already had with the other woman. No, look what God says, verse 19. But God said, No, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his future offspring. And that happened. So when you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, and it says, Abraham fathered Isaac, that's the story that's underneath that. The people that originally read Abraham fathered Isaac, they knew all of those verses and a whole bunch of verses I didn't even read. And so as they read this, there's no way they would have said, oh yeah, this is a story of just random people conceiving children, right? God had nothing to do with this. They know right at the beginning, no, God was very involved in this. And then if you keep going, there's other times you'll see that it's obvious God's involved. I'm going to do one more because I really like this one. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Now that little sentence, right? that little, I guess it's just a clause, part of a sentence. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Those five words. There's a whole story behind those five words. It's not just Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. You go back to the Old Testament, there's four whole chapters that explain what happened when Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. And if you don't know the story, I will let you know that Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth was kind of an unlikely story. In fact, Ruth meeting Boaz was kind of an unlikely story, if you know the background of the story. Boaz lived in Bethlehem, not Christmas Bethlehem, like 1,400 years before that. Ancient Bethlehem in Israel, as best as I can tell, was a farmer. And then Ruth was a Moabitess. She lived in Moab, which is a whole different country. And travel was a lot more difficult back then, so I think it's fair to say she lived far away. And she lived in a whole different culture. She worshipped, I'm sure, a different god than he did, probably spoke a different language. Very unlikely that Ruth and Boaz are going to ever bump into each other and get married. But they do. How does it happen? God did stuff. 
What did he do? Well, I'll, I'll just quickly tell you, she was there in Moab with her um, mother-in-law, Naomi, and there comes a point where they realize that they're in a difficult situation because all the men in the family have died, and they're in poverty, and they're hungry, and they need food, and they hear that there's food in Israel. That's the thing that motivates them. But what I want to do is I want to read to you the verse in Ruth that teaches us that because it's worded, I think, in an interesting way, kind of a weird way. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 6, says this. She and her daughters-in-law, the she there is Naomi, and Ruth is one of the daughters-in-law. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to leave the land of Moab. Now, why? Because this is the thing that causes her to meet Boaz. Why did she leave Moab and go there? It says why. It says because she had heard in Moab that the who? The Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. That's not the most, like, that's not the most cost-effective way to phrase the sentence. Like that, that's a lot of extra information there. You would think that someone would just, if they're just trying to further the plot line of the story, they would just say, in Moab, they heard that there was food in Israel, right? But it doesn't say that. What they heard was that the Lord provided food to his people in Israel. See what I'm saying? What did they know me here? Naomi just didn't hear there's food in Israel. They heard God caused there to be food in Israel. That God had done something, I don't know, but I'm assuming it had to do with weather conditions because, you know, crops and food were the, like, the, the way that they got their food. I'm assuming sunshine and rain in the right proportions happened that year, and God was the one that was behind it. So God caused a particular weather pattern to happen on that year, the year that they were trying to decide, what do we do? Do we stay in Moab or not? And the reason that Ruth ends up in Israel on that particular year and that particular season and, and runs into Boaz... Is because God was doing stuff with the weather for his people. Isn't that interesting? To think that something that happened way before the birth of Jesus Christ was affected by weather conditions 1,400 years earlier? And God's in the story. And God's not just in that verse. God is in another verse in the book of Ruth. And again, it's another, it's another weirdly worded verse. It's another verse where you, there's what you would say, and then, there, and then it just looks like God got thrown in there. Look at this. And it has to do with the conception of Obed, because remember, my whole point here is Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. How did that happen? Was God involved in it? Oh, yes, he was. Look at this. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he was intimate with her, do we know what that's talking about? Okay, so everyone's got it. When he was intimate with her, the who? The Lord, that's weird, why is he in this sentence? The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. You see what I'm getting at? Again, if you were just writing the sentence the way you would to just get the point across, wouldn't you say Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and when he was intimate with her, she conceived a son? Isn't that what you'd say? But the writer of Ruth decided that in this intimate moment, this verse that's about Boaz and Ruth's sex life, he takes Yahweh and puts him in that verse and says he was involved in that. I talked to someone after the first service, they were like, yeah, I felt awkward at that point of the sermon where you said that. Like that God was involved in that? Yes, I don't know how, I don't know what he was doing. But the writer of Ruth makes it clear, somehow he did something involved in the conception of Obed. The Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. So in order for Matthew 1 verse 5 to be true, in order for it to be that Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, God was involved. God was involved in the conception. He was even involved in the weather patterns that caused them to meet. What I guess what I'm trying to say is for Jesus to be born when he was born, to whom he was born, where he was born, 
in which family lineage he was born into. I believe God had to be working in lots of ways for thousands of years, including the weather conditions in ancient Israel around 1400 BC. And I'm bringing this up because I want you to know why I believe that these happenings that are recorded in Matthew, this historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, I want you to understand why I believe these happenings were pre-planned, promised, and caused by God over a long period of time. And the people familiar with the Old Testament would have read it and known that probably immediately. God is not like the clockmaker who builds the clock and winds it up and gets it going and then walks away. I think that's a very popular view of God. In fact, so popular, I did not make up that analogy. Like, that's an analogy people use sometimes. That God... Like, 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 like the clock worker builds a clock and he gets all the gears to do whatever it is they're supposed to do so that once he's done with it, he walks away and it, you know, the, the hands move and it tells time without the creator of the clock like intervening and you know, causing anything to happen, right? He just, it's self-sustaining, like this is the thing, he's got his going, it's telling time, and then he can walk off and it continues to do its thing even when he's not around. And I think that there are people who believe that that's kind of the way the world works, that God created the earth... He created the whole universe, and then he kind of walked away afterwards. Like, he set it all up to work a certain way, but that doesn't mean he's involved in the details of our lives, right? That God, he set up rules in place, like, you know, whatever, that water freezes at such and such temperature and boils at such and such temperature and, you know, melts and, and gravity and things go down rather than up. You know, he set all the stuff up, all these laws and science and whatever, this is the way the world works, and then he was done. Okay, he put us on the earth and he said, okay, go at it. I made this world, do what you will with it. And he walked off and he's not involved in, the, in our lives. And this is a belief. This, historically, this belief was known as deism. Lots of famous people have believed this. Lots of famous people have been deists. And I assume there are lots of deisms, deists even to this day, even if they haven't heard that term and they don't know that's what it's called. But I think it's very popular to believe that there's a God like, of course, there's a God. I think there are lots of people who would say, of course, there's a God because this world is here. Like, somebody got all this going, right? Somebody got the ball rolling. He, she, or it got it going. But that doesn't mean he's like the way religious people say, where he's like involved in our lives and watching us and doing stuff and whatever. That's... God could have just got the whole thing rolling. And I guess what I'm letting you know is that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not the biblical worldview. There are numerous stories in Scripture where God intervenes in his world to cause things to happen according to his plan and according to his promises. And the Christmas story is one of those. And praise God. Now, one objection I want to address real quick before I close, and I actually didn't think of this until this morning. I woke up this morning in my bedroom and I thought about this. If somebody were to say, okay, Mario, that sermon was nice, all well and good, but... If the whole point of this is to show us that there's Abraham and David and then all these links in the chain that lead us to Jesus, and so this whole point of this genealogy is Matthew is showing us that from David and from Abraham come Jesus, the fulfillment of this long link of the chains, and so that's how we know God has been active in all these years and all of these things, that he's been doing things as he brings about Jesus. The problem with that, Mario, is, and the problem's in the text itself, there's a break in the chain right at the very end. In fact, you're the one that pointed it out to me, Mario. You get it? That the, so that there's, there's the, all these links in the chain. Yeah, that's my name, Mario. What's it to you? Okay. 
Um, so, just have never heckled a little kid. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was instinct, and God's working on me. I will leave you alone. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, so I could imagine that somebody could come along and they could say, hey, if there's links in the chain from Abraham and, and David and they go all the way to Joseph and then Joseph didn't father Jesus, then who cares that God was at work in all these lives? If the break in the chain comes at the very end and there's not a link between Joseph and Jesus, then why does it matter what was going on in the life of Ruth and the life of David and the life of Abraham, right? Because there's a break in the chain at the very end. He's not the son of Joseph, right? He, Joseph didn't father him. Does that make sense? You following me? Yeah, well, that ruins the whole sermon, doesn't it? We had this whole sermon, now all of a sudden we're going, well, it doesn't matter at the very end. Is that, is that true? So I'm just, I want to tell you how I deal with that objection. Okay? I don't think it's a big deal at all, so I want to explain it to you. First, I guess I'll start by saying this. We have to imagine what was Matthew thinking when he wrote this. And I'm telling you, I do not believe there's a chance that Matthew wrote out this whole genealogical record and then got to verse 16 and then went, Oh, man, I just realized that Joseph's not the biological father, and that means I wasted all this papyrus. I wrote all this stuff out. My hand's kind of hurting. This is stupid. Now I get it. I realize that's all irrelevant. He was, that's not even his biological father. Well, I wrote it. I guess I'll just keep it in there, and let's just start with the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. Do you think that's what Matthew did? No. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he believed. He knew exactly what he was pulling off here. So apparently, when it comes to being in the line of the Messiah, being in the kingly line, and remember, that's Matthew's concern here. That's why he said, Jesse fathered King David. When it comes to who is the king, Jesus had a father. He had a legal father on this earth, didn't he? Who was that father? Joseph. That when he gets to Jacob, father Joseph, this is not extra words that don't matter. Joseph was the husband of Mary. That's important. Joseph was Jesus's legal father. When it comes to what tribe is Jesus from, or the inheritance laws, all that, comes from, that, all that belongs to Joseph when he dies goes to who? Like when it comes to inheritance laws, who was his legal father on this earth? Joseph was. Now, I believe that Jesus was biologically related to David through his mom, Mary. But I think that Matthew is making a point here that this is about kingship, that the King David, and he had a son, he had a son, he had a son, he had a son, and there's Joseph, and Joseph is the legal father of Jesus. Is Jesus eligible to be the Messiah? Is he the anointed one? Is he from the kingly line? Oh, yeah, Joseph's his dad. So let me go ahead and end the sermon with this. Um, back when I was preaching on the series How to Read the Bible, so whatever that was, eight, nine, eight, nine weeks ago, I did a sermon where I talked about author intent. I hope you remember it. I talked about how what the, if you're trying to figure out what does the Bible mean, the, the best question probably to ask yourself is, what did the author intend when he wrote these words? Whoever the author is, whether it's Matthew or Paul or Moses, whoever it is, what did they intend when they wrote the words? Because that's what it means. That's, that, was my, that was my argument that I made back in How to Read the Bible. That Honestly, it kind of doesn't matter what the Bible means to you <laughs> in the year 2021. It's the, the person who wrote it when he put those words in that order, what did he mean? Because whatever he meant, that's what it means. So that's what I tried to explain to you back then. And so on that particular week, I was, I had, we talked about author intent and some other things. We, I preached the sermon, then I talked to a woman who attends this church. Um, she was in the first service, in fact. Um, and I talked to her right there in that aisleway. 
And we were talking about how to read the Bible, and she was talking about how she's been reading the Bible, and sometimes it's really difficult to understand the Bible, and it's, under, it's difficult to understand what it has to do with your life. And she specifically said, and one of the most difficult parts I come across are the genealogies. Sometimes I come across these sections of Scripture, and it's just lists of names, and I'm sitting there going, what does that mean, and what does this have to do with my life? What am I supposed to do with these lists of names in the Bible? And I stood right there, and I said to her, this is a good time to ask the question, what did the author intend when he gave us this list of names? And so we asked that about Matthew. What did Matthew intend? Why did he start off this gospel this way? Because I can guarantee you, he did not start off his gospel by saying, he did not write out the book of Matthew and then go, hmm, this is good. In fact, this is too good. I'm going to have too many readers. I know what I'll do. I'll get a big old boring list of names and I'll tack that on the front, Right? Because otherwise, too many people are going to read this thing. I mean, this is good. This is good news. I can't, we don't want everybody to find this out. I'm going to put a boring list of names right up in the front, real repetitive, and then only the most persevering readers will get to chapter two, and they will deserve the blessing they get, right? Is that what he was doing? No chance. No chance. This is a Jewish guy in the first century writing this genealogy because he cares about genealogies, and he's writing this to people who care about it. He's writing this to people who care about the links in the chain legally from Abraham and David all the way to the anointed one, the Messiah, who would save the world. This would have been thrilling reading for them, I'm pretty sure. Right? This, this certainly matters. And so we ask ourselves the question, not what do I do with this long list of names? What was Matthew's intention? I think his intention, and this is what I told the woman sitting right there in that aisle, standing in the aisle. It'd be weird if we sat down in the aisle together. Standing in that aisle, I said to him, I think the purpose of the genealogy is that was Matthew's way of saying, God keeps his promises. That's the point. God keeps his promises, his promises to Abraham, the promise that he made to David that a king would come from him and establish his kingdom forever. This Messiah who, as the story goes on, died on the cross for our sins so that we could live for him and with him forever. That fulfillment of that promise is what this list of names is about. I think this beginning of Matthew is Matthew's way of saying, our faithful God has finally brought us the salvation he promised. And that is good news. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this. I thank you for your word. I thank you for revealing things to us that we wouldn't know otherwise. I thank you for people like Matthew. I thank you for Joseph and Mary. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. I pray that those of us who know you would be able to walk away today going like, the promise-keeping God who is at work, even in things like the weather, and I don't even, I don't even, goodness gracious, when do we ever think that the weather has anything to do with something a thousand years from now? We don't even live our lives thinking that you are that you are able to handle a lot of complex things that we don't even dream of. So I pray you'd help us to see how big you are and worship you for it. I pray you'd help us to see you as a promise-keeping God and trustworthy for it. And I pray if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you, that they would come to know you. And then they go, well, I didn't even know that that's really what these things were about. I pray you'd even encourage us in our times when we read the Bible and we go, this kind of seems boring. Pray you'd help us to be faithful to you. And most importantly, thank you, thank you. We worship you for being faithful to us. Thank you for sending your Messiah, your Savior, into this world. I pray that we would worship you well this month for that fact. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.